Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 965. To begin today's show, Jay Jaffe is joined by John Boys, sports writer and documentarian for SB Nation and Secret Base. Jay asked John about his recent series on Blue Jays legend Dave Steeb, one of the most underrated pitchers of the 1980s. We hear about Steeb's numerous narrowly missed no-hitters, and why the beloved pitcher didn't get more Cy Young attention. We also hear about John's other famous video projects, like Breaking Madden, and how he first got the inspiration to do a documentary on Steve. Of course, you would see Dave Steve, and you would see his cards, and you would see it said All-Star on the front, and then on the back, his ERA was like in the twos so many years, and I'm like, this guy must be awesome, but... You know, of course, like didn't really, you know, by the time the Jays went to the World Series in 92, you know, I was I was nine years old. And of course, he didn't even play in it. So I didn't ever watch him firsthand in the moment. But it was later on when I would, you know, read about his, you know, a loss, no hitters. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. For him. <laughs> After that, David Lorla is joined by Lewis Head, 31 year old major league reliever who is now a member of the Marlins. David talked to the journeyman last August when he was a member of the Rays and he shares what it was like to be optioned 12 times in a season, and how he feels following a trade. We also hear about things like his challenging Major League debut, facing his old team and friends, being impressed by Ryan Merritt, and how he feels about the importance of spin rate. When I think I was upper like 2000s, 27 or 2800, around there, you know, I'd get up to 29 or 3000 every now and then, but my averages was far lower, and it was getting so much better results, so... I'm a personally not a believer of spin rate. You know, maybe you can affect late break a little bit, but what's more important is like movement profiles on pitches. I I think that's, you know, far more determining of if a pitch is nasty or not. Please note that both of these segments were recorded on Wednesday before the latest lockout news. I must also issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the fangraphs.com shop. With the return of baseball, we are as excited as ever to bring you more analysis and research and coverage and podcasts and all the many features we offer, and we couldn't do it without your support. Head on over to check out our merch, as well as consider an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. It is the best way to both browse the site and to support the site. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Fangraphs Audio, this is Jay Jaffe. If you've been following the arc of my Hall of Fame coverage, which goes all the way back to the 2002 election at my Futility Infielder blog, and then 2004 at Baseball Prospectus, you know that the battles to elect Burt Blylevin and Jack Morris loomed large, the former for the entry of advanced statistics and grassroots campaigning to make his case to voters, the latter for its reactionary appeal to old-school notions about baseball. Those battles loomed so large, in fact, that I wrote a whole chapter on them and the kerfuffles that surrounded them for my 2017 book, The Cooperstown Casebook. Part of that chapter was even excerpted on Fangraphs when the book was published. As it's come to pass, Blylevin and Morris are the only two starting pitchers in the hall who were born in the 1950s, a demographic oddity that stands out like a sore thumb even while acknowledging that four enshrined relievers were born in that decade as well, including starter-turned-closer Dennis Eckersley. As I've studied the issue during the transaction-free void of the current lockout, focusing on S-Jaws, an experimental update of my Hall Fitness metric aimed at tamping down the impact of 19th and early 20th century workhorses, my conclusion is that the pitchers from this period, who generally debuted after the designated hitter was adopted in 1973 and stuck around through the 80s, weren't necessarily lesser ones. 
Rather, they were great in an era that starters didn't sustain greatness for very long, in part because of overuse and trying to adhere to an outdated paradigm, and then being measured against that outdated paradigm by Hall voters. Not every pitcher can be as durable as Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, or the four others of that time who won 300 games in careers that lasted over 20 seasons, but between the election of Ferguson Jenkins in 1991 and Blylevin 20 years later, no pitcher with fewer than 300 wins was elected. Morris resembled some of those workhorses, though he wasn't as adept at preventing runs. Given his low standing in Jaws, where he ranks 172nd, and S-Jaws, where he's 163rd, it seems appropriate to focus on the best unenshrined pitchers of the era and their fitness for election. And inevitably, when one thinks back to the 1980s and pitchers born in the 1950s, with or without Jaws, one lands upon Dave Steeb, the Blue Jays' ace who was the decade's ultimate hard luck pitcher, a right-hander who won only 176 games, all but two of which came with the Toronto Blue Jays between 1979 and 1992. As great as he was, Steve somehow never won a Cy Young Award and walked away from the game at age 35 amid numerous injuries, though he made a brief comeback at the age of 40 in 1998. His 122 ERA plus and 56.4 career war dwarfed Morris's 105 ERA plus and 43.5 war. As it turns out, I'm not the only person leading the Dave Steeb Appreciation Society Parade. Since 2009, John Boyce has been writing for SB Nation, and since 2015, he's been producing documentary videos for the site, lately at their Secret Base YouTube channel. He and producer Alex Rubenstein recently debuted the first episode of a four-part series called Captain Ahab, The Story of Dave Steeb, with additional episodes coming every two weeks. Given how entertained I've been by John's work over the years, this seemed like an ideal opportunity to invite him onto the show to talk. And so here he is. Welcome, John. Well, thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah, this I've been I'm looking forward to this since I uh, realized that we were on the same wavelength here with, with Dave Steve. But uh, first off, I wanted to thank you for so many laughs over the years. Between your, your stories of working at Radio Shack, your Breaking Madden series, your video about the bodybuilders arguing over the number of days in a week and more. You have kept me and my friends in stitches sharing your videos and, and your work more times than I can count. And you've provided a lot of food for thought. So just first, thank you for all of that. I wish I, I wish I had more time to sit and watch some of the stuff you've done. Well, I really appreciate that. Thanks for, for watching all, all, all the stuff that we put out there and got the universe to thank. It tells the best stories. I'm just there to kind of scoop them up and throw them on YouTube. <laughs> you, you have, you have a nag for discovering some, some offbeat ones. I think I've actually read more of your work about football than baseball because of breaking Madden. And I don't even like football. Aside from the Super Bowl, I not, might not watch another game all year. So. As far as the baseball goes, can you position yourself for us as a baseball fan in terms of who you grew up watching and when and the extent to which you follow the sport now? Yeah, sure. Well, I was a uh, I was born in Kansas City, and so I became a lifelong Royals fan by default. When I was nine, I moved to Atlanta and became a Braves fan just when they started getting really, really good in the 90s. So I was very blessed there. And to be frank, I have sort of lapsed a little bit in adulthood where I am not the hardcore fan I was as a kid, but I appreciate it. It is a welcome vacation from my number one favorite, which is football. Football can be super intense and very almost like combative and hostile. And, you know, it's nice to go back to baseball world where I'm like, ah, this is this is a nice, fun, amazing, <laughs> dumb little sport. Uh, got it. OK, so when you teased the debut of the Steep series last month, you tweeted, I keep a big list of projects I want to do some way. And Dave Steve's been on it for 10 years. Now, 
I'm 52 years old, old enough to remember even Steve's time as a rookie and his baseball cards and all that. But if the internet is right, you weren't even born until 1982. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so that puts you as a wee lad when he had his initial run of greatness, the five all-star seasons from 1980 to 85. So how did you get hooked on his story? Well, I remember, you know, I was a huge baseball card collector as a little kid. And uh, of course, you would see Dave Steve and you would see his cards and you would see it said All-Star on the front. And then on the back, his ERA was like in the twos so many years. And I'm like, this guy must be awesome. But, you know, of course, like didn't really, you know, by the time the Jays went to the World Series in 92, you know, I was I was nine years old. And of course, he didn't even play in it. So I didn't ever watch him firsthand in the moment. But it was later on when I would... you know, read about his, you know, a loss, no hitters, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse for him. <laughs> um, and it wasn't really until well until my adulthood when I'm, you know, pouring over baseball reference and being like, why didn't this guy win a Cy Young Award ever? And uh, that was kind of my entry point. All right. That makes that makes sense. As somebody who, you know, has, has invested considerable energy in promoting the Hall of Fame candidacies of players like Ron Santo and Dick Allen and Minnie Minoso, who I might have still been playing when I was young, but were gone by the time I started watching, let alone writing. I can certainly relate to that curiosity about the about what I just missed and wanting to go back and, and retrace those steps and understand what the fuss was all about. And once I seized upon that, not being able to let go and wanting to tell those stories and connecting uh, with people who, you know, had had an even better grasp of the situation at the time. So you start with a moment in the in the in your first episode here that I wasn't even aware of actually that Steve is in the bullpen with the Blue Jays in 1998 at the end of his comeback after was it five years outside the majors I think five five years outside the majors and he catches the home run ball off the bat of the Tigers Bobby Higginson when he would have been the final out of a no hitter by Roy Halladay and it's the final game of the season but just the second game of Halladay's major league career I mean, I, I'm surprised I'd never realized that connection there. But do you have any memory of, of that at all as, as, as a fan? Or is that something that you discovered in, in the research? Yeah, I just discovered that. Alex and I, I think, dug that up um, really just a few months ago when we started this project. I had no clue. And, uh, you know, we we obviously had no plans to include it at all, not having known about it. And uh, Steve himself actually mentioned it in like a retrospective interview that I think was published in like 2016 or so. And it was kind of just an afterthought. He just kind of mentioned it off the cuff. Like, oh yeah, it was kind of wild. I caught, you know, Roy Halladay's would be no hitter in the bullpen. And I was like, no, we've got a front. This, this has to be the framework for the entire thing. We've got to hang this whole thing on this story and just kind of tell it from there. Cause it's, it's incredible. It's, it's brilliant. I mean, like, you know, just finding that needle in a haystack and that point of connection, because we know, we know Halliday got two no hitters, won the two Cy Young awards, you know, got the glory that Dave Steve, you know, I think missed out on and, you know, wound up in the Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, the, you know, tragic circumstances of what happened, completely different, you know, take that off the rails. But that continuity between, you know, the, the end of Steve's career and the beginning of Roy Halliday's career, I think works really well as a, as a framing device. And then, of course, you spend a good chunk of the episode exploring Steve's own quest for a no-hitter, which for so long seemed to define him. And in your telling, it, it shapes our entire view of the, the man and his career. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, it's an interesting way to kind of get a look into um, who Steve is like as a guy, as a, in addition to like who he is as a as a competitor. You know, in his book, we we lean really heavy on his uh, autobiography, which he published. I think he wrote it when he was twenty eight. Tomorrow I'll be perfect, and he said some things about those like the the blown no hitter in nineteen eighty two that went I think seven and a third or seven and two thirds, and he talked about how like yeah I lost that because I just would not trust my catcher. Uh, Gino Petrali. Like I kept shaking him off and shaking him off. And little did I know that Petrali had actually had experience playing with Tony Armas in the past. And he knew what he was doing by calling those pitches. So we were able to kind of use that as an entry point and be like, yeah, this is why he's not ready to throw his no hitter yet, because he he's just too young and too overconfident. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I think the one thing you, you really get at with the, you detail in the, uh, in the documentary is, and that I totally missed at the time as a kid, cause I'm, you know, they're not talking about the stuff on the back of baseball cards is Steve's relationship with his teammates. And, you know, he's, he's the best pitcher on a crummy expansion team. And, you know, he's got the, this fiery competitive nature and he's being let down. It's what seems like all the time. Yeah, it's interesting. His relationship with his uh, teammates is a really interesting one. We we get into this in uh, later episodes, but one time he he flat out says, even when he's you know a veteran, you know into his thirties, he tells one newspaper reporter that like, listen, I I don't feel like I am able to be a leader, even though I'm like an elder statesman here. I don't think I have it in me to be a leader. Part of that is because he doesn't think that a starting pitcher who pitches only every five games can be that leader. And he was like, no, that has to be like guys like Dave Winfield who do. That that. So, you know, that part of it was that and part of it was that he he was very much just like kind of a loner in a lot of ways. Although he did have, you know, a lot of good friends, uh Ernie Witt, he was really close to uh, Lloyd Mosby, he was very close to. But uh he overall he was just a little bit more standoffish and he did this thing or that, you know, from throwing teammates under the bus when he threw fits or you know, whatever that alienated his teammates in his younger years. Not he kind of grew out of that, but in his younger years, it was it was a big deal. Okay, that makes that makes some sense. Now, going back to that 1982 no hitter in the documentary, you you talk about him shaking off uh, Gino Petrali and you know being convinced you know within his limited experience that he knows better than his catcher. What really stands out, and uh, to me, this was this was actually remarkable because to set us a little tangent here, because Steve hadn't been on a Hall of Fame ballot since 2004, the first year I did my analyses with my JAWS system, I'd never written more than a couple paragraphs about him. And so I'd entirely forgotten the whole angle that he was a converted outfielder. And yet here he is in the majors as a pitcher with just just over a year after being drafted with 128 minor league innings under his belt. Now, I think you sort of get at it with in the in the documentary, but this sort of certainty of how it comes easily for him is 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 part of that part of that cockiness and confidence, but also part of that relationship with his teammates, right? Absolutely. It was a that was a thing that honestly like escaped my attention really. Like I think I I vaguely knew that he was a, an outfielder in high school and college, but I didn't really appreciate how crazy it was that he learned how to be a top flight pitcher like in that short of a time span. One thing that we Another thing that we will go on to talk about in a future episode is that, you know, he he admits that a big source of his impatience and his, you know, throwing fits and stuff is because he's used to being the active party. He grew up being, you know, a hitter where you are, the, you know, when the baseball goes into play, you're the person who put it there. So you are the active party. But 
then he switches to a job where he is the passive party. You know, unless the ball is hit back to you, you are a spectator and you just have to watch whatever happens, happens. And that loss of control is something that if he had been raised to be a pitcher when he was like 10 years old or something, he would have gotten used to it. But he says, I'm not used to it. I didn't grow up approaching the game that way. And that's why I get so mad and so impatient and uh, can be okay. such a baby sometimes. <laughs> that's interesting. Getting back to the, the 128 minor league innings under his belt, you did some research for uh, for the piece and you, you came up with some historical precedents for like how few innings. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, there was, you know, way back in the day, there was Bob Lemon who, you know, in his 20s, he learned how to pitch, I think, while he was, you know, in the Army or the Navy, I believe it was. But as far as those those guys, those peers with him in 79 who broke into the majors, you know, there were a ton of guys. Um, I can't remember them all offhand, but they pitched hundreds of innings in the minors. They were toiling for years and years. And uh, then they would, you know, pop up in the majors for usually a cup of coffee or so and get sent down after, you know, five, 10 innings. And then Steve comes along and, you know, pitches, I think, 128 innings in the minors. And he just rockets. He just fast tracks right through the system, uh, skipping double A entirely, I believe. And he's just there and he stays there forever. Yeah, the Lemon precedent, the Bob Lemon precedent is interesting because I remember Bob Lemon as the Yankees manager in, in this 1978 and 81 World Series. It wasn't until like years later that I learned about him as a pitcher. But when I was researching for my book, so he's uh, he, he came up to the majors as a, as a third baseman in 1941-42. And then he, he goes off and spends three years in the Navy. And I guess obviously he did some pitching there, but he's playing center field for the Indians when he returns in 1946, and in the midst of a slump, he basically converts to the mound on the fly at the major league level. No trip to the minors, no nothing. He's got a sinker and a knuckleball until the pitching coach, Mel Harder, teaches him a curve and a slider. Like Steve, the slider becomes his money pitch, and he goes on to have, you know, an abbreviated but Hall of Fame career. You know, he's it's... When I look at him in the book, it's a little fringy, but at the same time, he was, you know, pretty impressive for what he did. Part of two pennant-winning uh, Cleveland teams. The more I look at it, the more I, the more I really do see some parallels there with you know the compressed career and the high bar he set. Absolutely, he was Bob Lemon's story is in a lot of ways. You know, I I I try to make it make sense of some kind by being like, oh well, it happened in the '40s and where anyone could just do whatever. But I mean, that's not true. But you know, they were still playing at like an incredibly high level of the sport. So I mean, it's it's unbelievable what Lemon did. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know, I mean, you know, this Lemon does this in, just before integration, but you know, his most of his career as a pitcher takes place after integration. So you know, it really is you know a higher level, even though you know the AL didn't integrate as quickly as the as the NL, and and a good chunk of the best players uh, of color who were uh, uh, in the AL were, were his teammates, like Larry Doby. So <laughs> right, anyway, right. Let's see, Yokes. So getting back to getting back to the conversion. When I was putting together my piece, I came across an anecdote by Bobby Maddock, who at the time was the, the Blue Jays' director of player development. You've got the perspective of the scout that was with him that day that, that they saw saw him come in from the outfield to pitch at the uh, Southern Illinois University game. Uh, tell us a little bit about, the, about that, uh, that ruse that uh, Lamakia pulled. <laughs> that was a good one. And actually, one thing that we only, we kind of only got half right with that story is that Maddock apparently was also there. We kind of, after we recorded, I looked and okay. was like, oh yeah, Maddock was there too. But uh, Lamaki's uh, big sleight of hand thing was like he... 
you know, him and a bunch of scouts from other teams were there. Blue Jay scout Al Lamakia kind of just turns turns to him and says, like, this guy, this is a fluke. Like, he's playing against a bunch of, like, jobbers, basically. These are college kids. Any college kid can throw hard. Big deal. And uh, they were like, yeah, no, nah, I guess you're right. And then, and then as soon as he's out of earshot from him, he uh, picks up the phone and, and calls the Jays and uh, gets him right into the system. Yeah, that's that's great. And Maddock later said that staying to watch him pitch was one of the smartest things he's ever done, which is no small claim for a man who signed uh, the likes of Frank Robinson, Hall of Famer, and Veda Pinson, who's pretty close to being a Hall of Famer. That's pretty amazing territory. I mean, yeah, you put put you know mention that guy as the third in that trio. That's a that's a pretty impressive career. And I know the Blue Jays and you know he's largely responsible for that wave of talent that the. Uh, that the Blue Jays put together in in the mid '80s and 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 helped fuel their playoff runs. Yeah, now actually, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear you say that, and I'd like to butt in really quick and honestly, kind of ask for your two cents on that because one thing that we sort of one one thing that we sort of argue is that, like, of course. Dave Steve is not directly responsible for their eventual World Series titles and that kind of thing, but he was kind of the lone bright spot in the early years, and that might have demonstrated proof of concept and you know showed the fans and the the ownership like look they have something here. So like, would you? It sounds like you're placing a little bit of the responsibility on the the World Series wins to Steve. Well, you know, by the time they got to the World Series, they, you know, they they were using you know guys that they had that they had acquired via trades or free agency as well. But like those those mid '80s teams, the ones that broke through you know, to the playoffs in '85. I mean, they were like an outfield fa- an outfielder factory. I mean, they they had so many outfielders they don't didn't know what to do with them. You know, moving Willie Upshaw to first base because they had uh, Lloyd Mosby, Jesse Barfield. And George Bell in the in the outfield is I mean that's just that's a lot of talent there you know so I, maybe the influence in, by the by the '90s is less I'd have to I'd have to go back and and, and look but the, you know the pitching was a lot harder for them to come up with uh, as I think as it is for for most teams you you know you get the you get the position players ahead of the pitchers uh, in a, in a lot of cases and for the Blue Jays that was that was certainly the case and so they had to. Uh, they had to wait for their pitching to catch up before they could really be you know, contenders in the AL East then. No, absolutely. Yeah. He was, you know, obviously not the only good pitcher for the Jays in those years. Uh, but w- one sort of irony there that Alex likes to laugh at a lot is, and they did, like you said, they had that monster outfield. They had like some terrific hitters, you know, George Bell becoming MVP with, I think, 47 home runs. And yet like, just magically, Steve would have the bad luck of getting poor run support for, you know, so many of those games for no real reason. But of course, that was an era where pitching wins were so highly valued and that, you know, <laughs> opens up a whole other thing. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's let's talk about that actually here because so Steve never won a Cy Young and in fact, never finished higher than fourth in a Cy Young race. He had fourth in 1982 when he went 17 and 14 with a 325 ERA. And then back-to-back seventh-place finishes in 1984 when he was 16 and eight with a 2.83 ERA, and 85 when he was 14 and 13 with a league-leading 2.48 ERA. I mean, you know, we know that voters of those days looked at one-loss records first and maybe ERA second. But what's your read on why he never won a Cy Young award or even got much traction in the voting? I mean, like he should have been. All of those years there, you know, during that 1980 to 85 run, or at least, you know, in most of them. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's probably a cocktail of a few different things going on. One was that, you know, 
he was pretty abrasive to the media in his early years anyway. And another was, you know, he played in, in Toronto, which is kind of a foreign land to a lot of people, which, you know, who I, I believe each team's city um, has a writer who gets a Cy Young vote. Who knows why his city uh, didn't show up for him? But, uh, you know, there's also just the extreme bad luck of having his peak when he did, because we, we actually did some looking. And, you know, a lot of people think of like various models of wars like Hocus Pocus. We have heard it from our our commenters. A few of them are just like, I don't I'm, I refuse to buy into this war stuff. And that's cool. But uh you know, war does tend to agree with Cy Young voting results even way before war was in existence. Like in the 60s and early 70s, you see the guy who won the Cy Young Award was usually like top three or whatever in war. Same with like the period after 1984. Uh, But there's a window between 79 and 84 in which the guy who won the Cy is like ranked 20th in war and like 13th <laughs> in war and like 27th and all this crazy stuff. And it's like, of of course, that's when Dave Steve's peak had to be when they, they just completely lost their compass. Their idea of who the Cy Young is for kind of got cloudier and no one really knew what, what they wanted it to be. Yeah, I think there's there's so much you said there that I that I want to hit for at least at least a moment. There's so Steve led the AL in WAR annually. This is the baseball reference version of WAR, which is you know looking at runs run prevention, you know, and and adjusting for defense rather than looking at as the Fangraphs WAR does, looking at the simply the peripheral statistics. But he's three three years in a row with seven or more WAR leading the league, and he gets buckets for his trouble. You know, in one of those years, he doesn't even get a single Cy Young vote. And during those years, I mean, the you know, okay, Brett Saberhagen was was a worthy Cy Young winner when when he won in 1985. But in general, you know, this is a, a time when both the AL and the NL they're like they're they're voting relievers for you know, it's like oh my God, he got 40 saves. We have to give him something. <laughs> Willie Hernandez in 1984. I mean, 32 saves. You know, four point eight WAR. I mean, yes, he pitched one hundred and forty innings, and so that you know that wasn't you know the most egregious Cy Young ever. But if we're looking at his WAR, Dave Steep had seven point nine. He's seventh that year. Willie Hernandez at four point eight wins it. Burt Blylevin is third at seven. You know, with and he's got seven point two WAR, and he's like you know he at least gets first place votes, and and it just it's. You're right. I think the voters had lost the plot then. I do wonder about the about the extent of the extent of, of Steve's personality. But the other thing I was going to mention, and I, I was I didn't I, I didn't get a chance to go back and find it because uh, been so immersed in, in other things. But correct me if I'm wrong. You mentioned somewhere in there that for the first several years of his career, the Blue Jays were never chosen to be on NBC Game of the Week. Is that right? That is, yeah. We we cited a newspaper report for that. Uh, we did have a commenter say that uh, he believes that they were shown one time in like 1979. They're you know one of their first seasons, but uh, I mean, point point being, point either way is that uh, yeah, they basically just did not get on American TV at all. Yeah, I think if I saw him, it was probably like because my grandparents lived in Walla Walla, Washington, and got whatever you know got the Mariners broadcast, and so I might have seen him pitch against the Mariners at least one occasion. I feel like I, you know I know I saw him, I certainly saw him in All Star games, but yeah, you know the Blue Jays were not uh, a regular occurrence on TV, that's for sure. You know, a lot of his legend is just that—it's legend, it's stuff that we didn't all get to see with our own eyes. 
Absolutely. And uh, that's probably a reason why, I mean, in the first one, you know, we, we like to be able to fair use footage and show it when we can. But in part one, there's like so, there's almost none we can show because there's just, he just wasn't on enough TVs, you know, or right. on a big enough screen for people to, you know, record it on Betamax or whatever. It's just kind of gone. Okay, that actually raises a question. I First of all, I when I got to the end of, of part one and I saw all the the rights clearances that were done, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that you must have taken an army to do that. And, and that's even with, like you said, as, you know, as minimal video as, as you've got. Tell me more as somebody who just, you know, bangs out words and, and, you know, occasionally pulls a, a YouTube video and, and a couple tables from Stathead, you know, for my projects, even my bigger ones. Tell me about your process for, for doing this stuff. How does, how does it work? Well, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously takes a, a while, but, uh, the whole thing is basically put together by, uh, me and my producer, Alex Rubenstein. And we kind of, you know, we build the visuals while we write. So, you know, it's kind of a hand in hand thing where, you know, we outline the story of Dave Steve, what we think it's going to be. Then we start building some visuals, some models, some charts and stuff like that. And then we have something we can look at when we actually write the final draft. So, uh-huh. um, you know, by the time we have then we can be like, look at this thing, look at this thing we we built or this cube or something. And we kind of just go hand in hand from there. So it's definitely not a thing where we, where we write the whole script and then just make all the visuals to fit it. It kind of it all goes together. Uh huh. What do you what do you use to do the the graphic animations and stuff like that? I use Google Earth, which is ab- okay. absolutely not huh. uh, what it's supposed to be used for. But uh, <laughs> they didn't mean they didn't intend for it to be used like that. But uh, it turns out it's it's a very uh, robust, powerful tool, and it uh, does the job. Wow, it sounds like you're like pulling some breaking Madden hacks on it to force it to do things it's not supposed to do. <laughs> That's actually not a not a bad comparison at all because it it has taken a whole lot. It's taken many years of figuring out the little quirks in a, a program that's very very awesome but that just you're using it you're make you're trying to make it do something that it wasn't intended to do. So, whole lot of little tricks and hacks and stuff. Yeah, no, I, I'm impressed, especially because I've never tried really tried very hard just to tell stories in that medium. I'm just learning how to do it in, in this one here in podcasting. So getting back to the personality stuff and the and the Hall of Fame voting, when I was putting together my piece, I got a a, uh, a great quote from John Lott, who covered Steve in 1998 and perhaps earlier, longtime Blue Jays beat writer. And I wanted to read this to you here because I wasn't sure if you'd seen it or not. But uh, he writes, Steve was a magnificent pitcher, a tragic hero, a lone wolf whose intensity could be as intimidating as his slider, a surly sort who alienated many a writer and some teammates as well. He hated to give in to a batter or a writer. For reasons that seemed irrational, he was sometimes as fierce off the field as on the mound, still fighting when the real fight was over. That is profound. And I think just it was within the last few days that I did come across that, that quote myself that you didn't put that in one of your pieces. Did you? I did. I, I did. Okay. That's probably, that's, that's, probably, that's probably where you saw it. <laughs> yeah. And it was, man, like the end of that quote is especially uh, amazing. It's it really is kind of indicative of, of who Steve was in the beginning. And I and I kind of wish, you know, it w- it would be cool to actually get more stories from beat reporters in the time like how much of a jerk was he really like right. or was he just standoffish and you know i also over the years i did kind of track his progress uh, because the writers tracked his progress and like stories that came out in you know 87 88 90 91 went out of their way to note that steve was actually 
being nicer to them. He was being more patient. He Uh was like putting in the work to be like kind of a better person to be around. And that to me was like a really important part of his journey because, you know, like he was a young guy who was immensely talented. So like, you know, guys like that, you know, high propensity for being a jerk. But you know, he did what a lot of guys don't. And like, he's like, you know what, I'm going to try to rein this in and I'm going to try to be better to the people around me because I want to be a better guy. And by all intention, by, by all appearances, uh, he won that. That's one fight that he definitely won. Like by the end, writers spoke really, really well of him a lot of the time. That's really interesting. And I'm glad, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know that. I mean, you know, in the few interviews I've read with him post career, he does come off as somebody who's, who's mature and, God help us, you know, <laughs> it would be tough. It would be tough not to under the circumstances, but uh, <laughs> right. you know, you, you does make you feel better, especially because look, I don't know how how closely you follow like Hall of Fame stuff in general, or or if you've seen my work. But when I shared my piece with you, you seemed surprised, or were, were you surprised to find that I was advocating for his election? I was not because I know that, you know, obviously your name has been, you know, kind of at the fore of a lot of like Hall of Fame, you know, meritocracy discussions and stuff. I know that you were the one who developed the, you know, Jaws and everything. Right. So I'm I'm not definitely not as deeply embedded in Hall of Fame world, although I am absolutely capable of letting it make me mad, which it just does all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why it exists. They put a building in New York just for the purpose of making people mad. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a that's a maybe a less less than charitable way to look at it, but boy, it, it certainly uh, touches a nerve. Yeah, it's you know because there is there is a little bit of fatalism sometimes that I see from a lot of writers, including ones that I really respect, where you know they're just like, well, it's an illegitimate institution because person X, Y, and Z is in, and person you know A, B, and C is not. And, you know, sometimes I fall into that, too. And I'm like, you know what? This is this is stupid. You know, I'm going to have my own Hall of Fame and invite whoever I want. And Pete Orr is going to be in it. And uh, <laughs> then because <I, laughs> why not? I like that guy a lot. Sure. But then, you know, you come back around because you realize like these players, you know, they kind of give us so many moments and they give us so much happiness over the years. And this means everything to them. So like that alone is enough to kind of bring me back around and be like, you know what, like this actually does matter in the sense that, you know, like baseball matters or or whatever, you know, it it, it really is meaningful. If it means a lot to them, then it should mean a lot to us if they've given us as much as they have, you know? Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. And I, you know, I I was struck as I kind of teased this series and even you know before I started writing the last installment, last to this date, there's still more to come. But just there's so much like there's a wellspring of, of support that's out there for Steve and people really remember him fondly. I mean, it's not just Blue Jays fans, although I have plenty of Blue Jays fans in my feet because, you know, I went up to Toronto a couple of times to do pitch talks and have retained a, a nice uh, following there. It's like people are like, Dave, Steve, f- yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's just, it's, I was really, you know, it really resonates with some people. And I think, you know, when you, when you think about the Hall of Fame, I mean, you know, first of all, the Hall of Fame is more than just, you know, the room of plaques that, that we argue endlessly over. I mean, it's a great museum that has, you know, excellent research capabilities and, and all that. And it's, you know, set in this like wonderful little hamlet. But, you know, people do focus on, on the arguments over who's in, but we don't, and I haven't been, haven't been able to articulate a strong case for him until now when I started rejiggering my metric to sort of make sure that we're not that, that the Hall of Fame starter isn't a dying species which which sometimes seems to be here and then you know once I did it's like you know 
Eureka, it's Dave Steve. And people are like, Dave Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I've gotten such a similar reaction where like the, the only, you know, because we tend to slant toward like a somewhat younger audience. Although, you know, we do have some like baseball fans who have been around for longer as well. And uh, the two responses, no one is ever like, I don't like Dave Steve. Like I have not heard that once. Everyone is either who is Dave Steve or I love Dave Steve. Those are the two answers I get. Awesome. That's great. So John, tell us a little bit about Secret Base. So Secret Base is a uh, video channel on YouTube that we run about. Basically, we just make short little sports documentaries, sometimes longer documentaries as well, uh, about stories that collectively we in sports media have failed to really give the love and time and attention they deserve. Uh, we've got some amazing, we've got a show called Beef History where it's really just a documentary all about every petty, crappy beef <laughs> in sports history. It might be my personal favorite show. Uh, we've got a whole lot of others. Uh, Fumble Dimension, where, you know, kind of a, a spiritual successor to Breaking Madden, where we screw up sports games we find. And we just try to put something out there that isn't quite out there as it stands now. So we have a ton of fun. Uh, you can find us at youtube.com slash secret base SPN. And uh, that's where you can find the C projects and all my other stuff. Awesome. So I haven't seen the other three episodes of the series. Can you sketch out where it's going with uh, episodes two, three, and four? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in episode two, we see the emergence of uh, Jar Jar Binks, who is a, a funny character, kind of <laughs> co comic relief kind of guy, you know. Uh, I think people are really going to love him. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, part two is going to actually possibly be the longest episode. It is uh, going to cover all the way from the 1985 ALCS, in which a whole lot of stuff happened, and kind of end at the end of 1988, which people familiar with this story knows uh, how the 88 season ended for him. And then part three, we're going to move on toward, you know, 89 and 90. We actually, and I will go ahead and spoil this. In part three, smack in the middle of it is a 14-minute surprise documentary within a documentary. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's going to be about Ricky Henderson. Oh, boy. In the 1989 uh, ALCS, because in that series, he basically ascended to God mode. He just... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but he just absolutely wreaked havoc on the Blue Jays all by himself. And we were like, Alex and I were like, this is like so amazing that we kind of just have to stop the bus and tell this story. So we do that for a while. Hopefully people will stick around and uh, enjoy that. And then uh, part four is going to be just the the final, you know, his his exit is is really bittersweet. Of course, there is like the very amazing triumph of 1998. And then there's, you know, the the struggle to, to get him in the hall. And that's going to be, you know, I guess not really a surprise, but we are going to strongly advocate that if not, you know, we, we think that he should be in the Hall of Fame. But if nothing else, like just try to get him on that ballot in front right. of the uh, the Modern Era Committee. So fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed, definitely. For those of you out there who are unfamiliar with the arc of Steve's career, I don't think we actually explicitly hit this, but uh, the end of the 1988 season, Steve has back-to-back -back starts in which he comes within one strike of a no-hitter on September 24th and September 30th, uh, his final two starts of the season. And then... On August 4th, 1989, he came within one out of a perfect game, only to have it broken up. Over the 88 and 89 seasons, he throws five one-hit complete game shutouts. And finally, on September 2nd, 1990, he gets that first and to date only no-hitter in Blue Jays history, beating the Cleveland Indians. You obviously make, make some hay with that in there. But uh, anyway, John, I really enjoyed you know the first episode. I'm really looking forward to more. I'm somebody who 
can't even find time to listen to podcasts and watch many videos, but uh, I'm absolutely going to make time for this one. And I think people out there who are into Dave Steve certainly should, and people who you know want to see something a little bit different as they await the arrival of baseball season certainly should. So thank you so much for coming on here and, 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 and talking about him and talking about your work. Well, Jay, thank you so much for the kind words and for following along and watching. And I'm just like so happy that you and everybody else has uh, have gotten some uh, enjoyment out of it. I'm uh, really honored and Alex and I just really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, look forward to seeing the rest of this. Thanks again to John. And for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Lewis Head, 31-year-old pitcher for the Miami Marlins. Lewis, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, thank you all for having me on. Let's start with the fact that you were with the Tampa Bay Rays when I talked to you last August and, and wrote about you. How did you become a Marlin? I was traded uh, this offseason right before the lockout. I guess the Rays got some value out of me and decided to uh, give me an opportunity with another team, which I'm grateful for. And it's probably a pretty odd feeling to be traded. You know, you're 31, but I don't think you had actually been traded before. Is that correct? Yeah, that was my first time being traded. It was actually cool to have that experience. I know some guys like staying with the organizations they're with. I loved everything about Tampa, but I thought it was a cool experience to get traded. Yeah. How did you find out? Where did the phone call come from? It came from Neander actually. And uh, it was, I mean, he, Nander's a great guy and, you know, I owe a lot of getting up to the big leagues because of him. I think he makes those calls. So, you know, it was, it was cool to hear him call me and tell me I was getting traded. And that I believe was in, in November. Yes. Yes. Right. And now we are in March. We're heading toward the middle of March. We are talking on Wednesday, shortly before noon. And as we speak, MLB and the Players Union are meeting. So by the time this podcast airs on Friday morning, the lockout will either be over or it won't be over. You know, just how strange is it, Lewis, to not know where you're going to be and what you're going to be doing in, in a couple of days? Yeah, it, it is strange, um, all the uncertainty. Um, I guess the best we can do is just stay prepared um, for whenever the games may be. I know what we're fighting for is for the, the future of baseball and the future of the players. So I know that the players have the best interest in the game. So whatever happens, you know, kind of happens. And I don't really want to spend time talking about the lockout, you know, issues here. I yep. think people are kind of tired of hearing about that. But yep. I, I do want to ask you about one thing that has been brought up a few times in the negotiations, which is the possibility of limiting player options. Unless I've been mistaken, you were optioned, is it 12 times last summer? Yeah, I believe it was 12 times. And, you know, for a 31-year-old rookie having that many options you know, can probably help you out a little bit. But for, you know, 99.9% .9 of players that come into baseball, you don't want to have a team that can option somebody 12 times. It manipulates their service and, you know, they're not getting credit. Like I've heard of guys, you know, having eight starts in a season and having eight days of service time. Like how in going three and one for a team, like I don't see how that's any beneficial for that guy's career to only get eight service days for that. So limiting it to whatever the number comes out to will benefit guys in collecting more service time as they like to get them closer to arbitration. And this coming season, it's impossible to guess. Well, it's impossible to guess if we're going to have a season, number one. But assuming we do, you don't know how many times you'll be optioned. Yeah. And there's a lot of things, Lewis, that you don't know at all because 
not being able to work with or even talk to coaches or front office people in the Marlins org, that must also be pretty frustrating. Uh, yeah, especially being new at the organization, but this will be my fifth team I've been a part of. So, you know, you kind of go with a lot of uncertainties in a spring training, even when the season is, uh, scheduled. And especially as a minor league free agent, I didn't really have a chance to ever talk with coaches before going into, uh, the spring training. Two years ago, actually two years ago, Friday, the day this pod airs, you know, is when you signed with the Rays. Yeah. As we talked about in the interview this past summer, uh, just a few months earlier than signing with the Rays, you actually thought that your baseball career was over. Uh, yeah. So uh, in 2018, I had dealt with a shoulder impingement and I missed a majority of the season. And then in 2020, ironically, was running the base path as a pitcher after I got a hit and uh, I pulled both hamstrings, missed the second half of that season. Or no, that was 2019. And then in 2020, I was in spring training with Seattle and got released due to COVID, that was when they, like all the teams kind of released their minor league guys. And I think it would have been like right at the beginning of June. And then, uh, you know, I kind of, uh, I kept training and whatnot, was uh, holding on to hope. But then I got no calls from independent ball teams, no calls from other affiliate teams. So me and my wife kind of had a long talk and decided that it was probably best to move on from baseball. And I was 30 years old, hadn't even made it to the big leagues yet. So went out and got a job and was just knocking door-to-door-to-door to door to door selling solar panels and uh i actually found a lot of success in it um it was good and then that's yeah about i think it would have been close to a month ago is when i got the phone call from the res and instead of knocking on doors you of course were in the big leagues and you ended up having a very good rookie season i believe it was 27 appearances 35 innings uh 2.31 era 311 FIP. And your MLB debut came against the Blue Jays, I saw. And the first yep. three batters that you faced were not exactly rookie-level guys. No, it was Bichette, Guerrero Jr., and then actually a, a longtime friend of mine, Grichik. We grew up together in Houston and played travel ball in high school together. So it was cool to kind of face him. It's one of my first batters in the big leagues. Well, yeah, talk about that. I did not realize that because facing an old friend, I assume you both had smiles on your faces to suppress, but <laughs> I, you were maybe yeah. a little bit stressed out being a debut. Yeah, it, it was so much was going on. It didn't really, uh, you know, I mean, I knew I was facing him, but I didn't, you know, I just, you just tried not to make eye contact and whatnot. Just tried to focus on the pitch I had to make, you know, just because you have so many emotions in that first game when you go out there. And you retired all three guys. Yep. I know the next day you actually pitched against Oakland and got your first career strikeout. So I'm hoping that you actually have the baseball or maybe your parents do. Actually, Mike Zunino did something pretty cool for me. And he uh, he got my jersey framed with my first pitch and my first strikeout. I have that back at my house. Wow, that that is really cool. Yep. You mentioned facing Randall Grichik. You know, your first win came against the team that you spent your first seven professional seasons with. Yeah. You know, that being Cleveland, I did not look at who you faced, but I'm guessing that you had to have known at least one or two of those guys. <laughs> yeah, I think the first batter I faced with Cleveland was uh, Jose Ramirez. And when I first got drafted, I was sent to short season and so was he. And we played together on that, that year. And then we were both called up to low A shortly after that. 
And yeah, we played that season together. I think we might have played one other season in the minor leagues together. But yeah, we spent seven years in Cleveland together. And then Bradley Zimmer, he's, he's one of my good friends. We we spent a lot of time playing in the Columbus together in Akron. Yeah, was Bradley one of the guys who you gave up a base hit to? Yeah, yeah, he beat out he beat out a, a an infield single to first base. I was actually I was I was booking it too to first, and he's just you know he's he's got gazelle legs. He's so fast. It's I mean, there's not many people that can keep up with him. No, he's got wheels. Yeah, I would think that he has uh, mentioned the hit to you since then. <laughs> no, uh, no, uh, I, I, I actually, uh, I haven't got a chance to talk to him since then. Um, well, we said we talked a little bit after the games, uh, but nothing was mentioned about the hit or anything. He's a good guy for for not doing that. I think so. Yeah, let's let's uh, jump to the fact, Lewis, that all of your outings, but two were as a reliever. Uh, you were actually an opener in two games, yeah. and you had not really spent much time as a starter throughout your entire career. Those were actually my f- my first starts, I guess, if you'd call it, I guess, open first time pitching in the first innings in my career, <laughs> or at least to start the game in my in professional career. So that was uh, it was it was cool to do it in the big leagues. Like I, I I actually enjoyed it, despite the fact that the first batter you faced as a quote unquote starter didn't go so well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was uh, my my fault, though. I was going out there trying to see how many sliders I could throw in a row, and you just can't do that to to Cedric Mullins. Yeah, sorry for bringing up a a bad moment, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's all right. Cedric took you deep. He did, and uh, it, it was he actually got it pretty good. And you know, I just I beat him on two sliders at that same location, and I was trying to get a third one there, and uh, he was just ready for it. But yeah, no, honestly, like I it, I don't get stressed over that stuff anymore, upset about it. Like you know, with my past being out for so long, like even giving up home runs is better than you know anything I I did in the past. So giving up home runs in the big leagues isn't that bad. Sure. You mentioned your slider, and I would like, I'd like to talk about that pitch in, in a few minutes. Yeah. But first, in your other opportunity as an opener, I noticed that you struck out Miguel Cabrera, yeah. and you actually K'd Miggy the other time you faced him. That has to be something you're going to be telling your grandkids about someday, <laughs> because he's yeah. the first, first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, I mean, that was... Uh... That was really cool to come in there and do that. And I think, uh, I don't know how I got the call from the umpire, but I think the umpire had actually given me a strike on uh, one of the the front door sliders to Miggy. It kind of helped out one of the at-bats. So, <laughs> But it was, it was definitely a cool experience to, uh, to strike him out after watching him growing up my whole entire life. And before we get to uh, sliders, one of your minor league teammates with Cleveland was uh, Ryan Merritt, yes. who I think some listeners may re- remember in 2016 through, I think it was four and a third shutout innings in a start against the Blue Jays to clinch the ALCS. And I was actually at that game in the press box. And I remember thinking that I don't think anybody who's not in the Cleveland dugout is expecting Ryan Merritt to win this game. I think he had maybe 10 big league innings at, at that time, and, and, I, he, and he shoved. And I, I can't remember the whole thing, but I think he was actually called up for that game. He wasn't even on the playoff roster until that last game. I think somebody had gotten injured. I could be wrong. You might want to fact check that. But, yeah, I mean, he, that was – like a really cool game to watch because we, you know, I, me and Ryan played at every level together in the minor league. So when they called him up there, and you know, I mean, I've seen, I've seen him do that numerous times, like more times than you could count. And so I knew it was in there, but uh, not, not many people knew who Ryan Merritt was. Probably not even many people in Cleveland knew who Ryan Merritt was. And you know, 
after that game, everybody knew who he was. And he, he just completely shut the door. Yeah, I think everybody knows the name now, baseball fans in Cleveland. I'm still yep. not sure if it's possible. He, you know, he may still have to buy drinks, though, if he walks into a, uh, <laughs> yep. you know, a pub near that ballpark. I don't know if people would actually recognize the face. Yeah, I don't know that. I, I know right after that, I mean, he probably had every drink he wanted paid for. <laughs> Immediately after, yes. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about your slider. We talked about it in the interview this summer, but it's really... A change you made to that pitch is actually what had you in the big leagues, let alone be successful. It made a lot of sense what how Tampa had explained it to me when I first came over. Just creating more sweep to the slider, how it would be more beneficial from where my arm slot was and uh, how it just matched the plane of my fastball better. And before I had been trying to like, I, I was a carry fastball guy, so I'm trying to throw like 12-6 curveballs. And I mean, how to think a low approach angle is, is very new to what we're learning about pitching. And I, I'd never had that explained to me that I throw from a low approach angle. And so trying to throw that 12-6 curveball and uh, it was just, it would pop up out of my hand. Like I just didn't, I didn't, I don't know if I just threw it right or whatnot, or just how I gripped it. It just, it came out differently out of my hand and it didn't match up the plane of my heater. So kind of tilting the spin to spin sideways versus top spin just created more side spin to the baseball and then caused more horizontal break on it. And then I was start, it was matching, started to match up the plane of my fastball better, started getting more swing and misses on it, started getting more swing and misses on my fastball because of it. And yeah, it just made, it made a lot of sense and it started clicking once it started, once I started figuring it out. And you didn't actually change the grip, I believe. You just changed your wrist angle. Yes. Yeah. I kept the same grip I've thrown my whole life. I, I don't know why I, 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 try so many other grips and so many guys that throw really good sliders and stuff and I just I grip it like them and it doesn't do the same action so I just I just throw what comes natural to me and I just change my wrist position and you told me last summer Lewis that on average you were getting about 14 to 17 inches of of horizontal yeah yeah it it, it would probably be more around I think at the end of the year um it, it was averaging you know probably 12 to 14 um but I, I was getting upwards of 20 to, to 22 on some of them um it just kind of it, it was weird it, you know I think making the first adjustment this season this last season it was it was still wanting to go up and down some so sometimes it would I would get a little bit more depth to it but for the most part it was sweeping pretty good and on the amount of, of sweep you were getting on it, I know you told me last year that on a good day, it was 20 to 22. Yep. And sometimes it would be more. Looking at your data and seeing you actually had a pretty low chase rate on your slider, yep. I'm wondering if at times when your slider was better, it actually wasn't, quote unquote, <laughs> better. Yeah. I honestly saw a lot of uh, when it wasn't as big, I was when it was a little bit smaller and tighter, I was actually seeing more swing and misses on it. So it's kind of been a little bit of, is still keeping that sweep action too, but just, you know, sharpening it up has kind of been a focus of mine this off season. And you're doing that, a lot of that work, I believe at uh, Eric Cressy's uh, Florida facility. Yes. I got out here about a month ago, maybe a little bit less. I've actually did a lot of my off season training at a facility called dynamic sports training down there in Houston. And there's a lot of pro guys that train there as well. But this last month has, um, the Marlins had been getting together for practices and stuff out here. So I thought it'd be good to kind of come and get, at least get to know my teammates and stuff. So we made the move out here this last month. Yeah. Who are some of the, the guys that you've gotten a chance to know, you know, and maybe throw with and talk pitching? 
uh, Sean Gunther, Cody Petit, Jordan Holloway, Jesus Lazardo. Those are some of the guys that some of the pitchers that are training at Cressy. Um, Birdie, he's a position player training there. Uh, Fortes, the catcher. I got to talk to Stallings for a little bit. And then like some of the position players that were coming in for the practices was Miguel Rojas, uh, Brenson. I'm still trying to learn everybody with their... <laughs> And so, you know, there was, there was a bunch of guys showing up and I mean, there's far more than I could even name. I'm still trying to get, learn everybody's name. It's hard when you don't have faces to look at online. Well, hopefully we have spring training in full force and you're around these guys all the time, certainly. Are you working on anything else, you know, this winter? You know, trying to develop maybe a new pitch or change something. <laughs> yeah, so actually there there was a few games last year where I threw it. Uh, it was kind of funny how it came about. I was throwing a – I usually throw off the mound like five or six pitches every day to eight just to kind of feel the slope. And uh, one day I just decided to throw a change up, and it actually ended up being really good. And then the next day Tampa had called me up to pitch against Baltimore and they're like hey we want you to throw this pitch three or four times in the game I don't it once all year so it was kind of like shocking they told me that I threw it a few times I located it good but didn't get any swings on it and uh like metrically they it was one of their better pitches they liked that I threw so I wanted to uh, kind of work on that this offseason and uh, it's been coming along pretty well on the subject of metrics Lewis spin rate important yep. or not so important I don't think it's very important. I, you know, in the past I spun, you know, my slider or whatever, curveball, whatever, slurve, whatever you want to call it, like upwards of, you know, probably 3000 RPMs to 3100. And last year when it, my, when it, I think the top spin create, you know, when you can throw 12, six, like you can create more spin that way. But when I started throwing it side spin, it kind of killed the spin a little bit. And I think I was upper like 2000s 27 or 2800 around there you know i'd get up to 29 or 3000 every now and then but my averages was far lower and it was getting so much better results so i'm a personally not a believer of spin rate you know maybe it can affect late break a little bit but what's more important is like movement profiles on pitches i i think that's you know far more determining of if a pitch is nasty or not you know, like sinker ballers, their spin's not very good and it's moving across trends or whatever. His sinker is godly and, you know, the spin is probably less than 1,600. Would you be saying a lot of the same things, you know, prior to working with Kyle Snyder? No. <laughs> or, or with the Tampa Bay organization in general, their their guys are very smart over there. And I mean, their analytics department was, it's not, it's not as big as like the Dodgers analytics department, but they, they know what they're talking about in Tampa. They're smart. Yeah. You were in the Dodgers organization fairly briefly. Yeah. And now you are in the Marlins org. And again, <laughs> you know, just how much you know about how much they work with analytics and how they apply it, I guess is still somewhat of an unknown or have you had a chance to learn much of that with Miami with Miami yes just like from, like from talking to the teammates for instance no I haven't uh, got a chance to talk about it as much to be honest with Tampa I you know they would give me my reports after the game I kind of glance at it but I, I didn't really try to focus too much on it I tried to stay off the analytics more last year than anything I tried to focus more on like locating my pitches I think in the past I'd get caught up in analytics and I just didn't want to get I just didn't want to get caught up last year and into that kind of stuff. 
Right. So once you're settling into Miami and the Marlins, you probably won't be known as, you know, Lewis the nerd, but rather just Lewis the uh, the effective reliever. Is that the goal? Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> that's the goal. Super. You know, before I let you go, you know, is there anything we haven't touched on here pitching-wise or career-wise that maybe we should spend a minute or two on? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of my career that that a lot of people don't know about that. I thought I think they would think is interesting, but that could be that could maybe another time. No, let's touch on an example or two because I think that a lot of people don't recognize that a baseball career, especially one spent a lot of the years in the minors, it's not the big leagues and limousines no. and four star hotels. No, I mean, and and even prior to that, you know, in college, I was I was cut from my first university at Texas Tech. Was just going to go to school at Texas State. Like, wasn't even going to play baseball anymore. My college coach at Tech kind of told me, you know, you're not good enough to play in Division One. You you know, you're not going to be. He didn't think I was going to be a professional baseball player. He said I was really smart. Just focus on school. So I did. I went I transferred to universities, and then I, the coaches there, you know, had contacted me and told me. They wanted me to at least come throw a bullpen for him to see if I still could throw. And, you know, I went down there and threw really well. But with those pass rolls, you'd have to sit out a year. So I wasn't allowed to do, like, anything with the team. I had to work out on my own, throw on my own, which was really hard to find somebody to throw with when everybody that plays catch at the university is on the baseball team. So, And then that next summer, I went to go play college summer ball, did really well, and then ended up making the team the following year at Texas State. And I started off out of the bullpen – Worked my way to a starter. It didn't go so well. Just kind of like at Texas Tech. I was always just kind of was thrown into a starter role at Tech, and it just never really worked out. And then Texas State's like, hey, well, we're going to throw you in the back of the bullpen. And then they threw me to the back of the bullpen, and I just locked in. And, you know, that's what kind of got me drafted. And then, you know, you go. I go to Cleveland's organization, which was a promising organization to get drafted at the time. You know, there I think they had 55 wins that that year. So that first couple of years, I just flew through the system. I I got up to Double A probably in like I think like a year and a half, maybe. And you know, I was just like, oh man, like I'm I'm on the fast road to the big leagues. And then it just like, you know, Terry Francona came over, and then they started making all these trades. They started spending money, and then it was just like halted. Just you know, putting up. I I think I put up a two. Two nine in my first year in Double A, a four in my second, and then a a two six, and I the my third year spent the whole just I, I felt like I was throwing well and just like no opportunities were ever presenting themselves because everybody above me was throw, was throwing well, and it's 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 not always about how you perform sometimes in the minor leagues it's it's a lot of opportunities of where you're at and just timing and uh, I just never had that timing and then you know I get I get called to triple in seventeen through really well but once again Cleveland was you know, a powerhouse bullpen and everybody was, I mean, I'm throwing unbelievable and there's just no, there was no room for movement. And, uh, and then 18 came along, didn't have a, uh, had kind of a shoulder impingement, didn't, didn't pitch very well that year and then, uh, became a free agent. And that's kind of, we kind of think we touched base on everything else. Right. And then solar panels. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a rags to riches story. And, uh, what happened, Lewis was because you, were so good in the big leagues last year when you finally got that opportunity a team that had a really really deep strong bullpen yeah. you know traded you somewhere where you, you know you're wanted so yeah i know it's worked out very well in the end 
Yeah, and I think kind of the reason they – I mean, they, they obviously – I think everybody saw that Tampa had a clear room at the end of the season. But even if they kept me, it would have made sense for them just from a financial standpoint. But they want I, – I, I think on their end too, they wanted to give me an opportunity to where I could, you know, prove that I am – I should be up here every day. And, and it just wasn't going to happen with them, I don't think. I think I would have kind of been in the same situation this next year as I was last year if I would have stayed with them. Yeah, we should leave uh, the word finance out of any any of these conversations. Yeah, the that's true. The that's way true. baseball's going. Yeah, Lewis, hey, it's great to catch up, man. And uh, hopefully I will see you at a ballpark this summer. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Right. And thank you for coming on. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. This has been Fangrass Audio. Thank you to John Boys and Lewis Head for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. Make sure to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up with all the things we have going on. And trust us, we'll be doing a lot this spring as we head into the season. Have a good one, and we'll talk to you next time.